If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As we continue our study of this book, we'll begin in a moment in the seventh verse. Uh, I wonder if you've ever seen uh, one of those illusions, uh, one of those pictures that when you first see it, you see one thing, but then when you look at it just a little longer, you see something else entirely. Have you ever seen something like that? I'll show you just a few. Uh, the first one, you tell me, is this two faces or is this a vase? So some of you saw the faces first, some of you still haven't seen the vase, but that's okay. Now we're going to make it a little more complicated. Let me show you a second one. How many vases are there? You're thinking it's not a vase, it's people, but it's a vase. It's three vases. And then for the advanced observers, we'll show a third one. So is this a skull or is this a woman looking out the window? See, there are some, some times in life where you see something and there is some evidence of the something that you see but there is something else there as well, or sometimes we just miss uh, what the true picture is. I read this week just a little bit about uh, airplane pilots and how they can, and this just amazes me, they can lose track of the horizon and not know exactly which way is up. Now, I've never flown a plane, so I can't imagine that that would be true, but it is, in fact, uh, about, uh, well, a significant number of airplane crashes are because a pilot uh, lost track of the horizon. Uh, it's, a, it's a situation called spatial disorientation, or spatial D. There are four mechanisms in the human body that will inform our brains about our spatial orientation, which way is up and down and whether we're moving or leaning. There are four different systems. I, I, I could name them, I would mispronounce them all. Uh, but the dominant system is our visual system, what you see. But if it's a dark night or perhaps you're flying in a storm or sometimes just over the ocean, there won't be any visual reference of what is up and down in the horizon. And so these other three systems in our bodies, those systems will inform the pilot and those systems can get confused. And when they do, a couple of things can happen. One is called the leans, and this is how Kobe Bryant's helicopter crashed uh, just a few years ago, uh, the leans. And the other one is called the graveyard spiral. And that's how John F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, died uh, about 20 years ago or so. You see, sometimes when we perceive one thing and it's something else, it doesn't matter, the pictures that we saw. But sometimes when we perceive one thing and reality is something else, it can, well, it can really make a difference. It can make a grave difference in life. So with that in mind, here's our message today. 
the way we see life, the way we see living, what we perceive to be the most important things in life, what we see to be the purpose of life, where we look for joy and peace, what we hope for and long for in life, well, we may have that wrong. We may be looking at something and thinking that is the truth when in fact the truth is very different from that. We may in our lives have this spatial D. We may think something is true and valuable, healthy and wise, and it may not be that. There may be a truer reality. And that's what we're going to see in the scripture passage this morning. And I don't mean to be philosophical. We're going to live in the practical today. But the passage we're going to study is going to show us that because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is a whole new way to look at life and to live life. And we'll see that. We'll learn that today. You know, if a pilot gets confused about the horizon, if the attitude of the plane, I think that's what they call that, uh, if the attitude is not correct, uh, terrible things can happen. People can die. If we fail to see life through the, the lens of the resurrection of Christ, there can be consequences in our life just the same. We can bristle under affliction. We can lose our joy. We can be unsatisfied with life. We can really be disappointed and in how susceptible we are to temptation. And then many people will just give up. They'll give up their faith or they'll give up their family or some may give up their lives because we don't look at life through the lens of the resurrection of Christ. So let's see how to do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we begin in verse 7. The Bible says, now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Now, what's the treasure he's talking about? Now, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open this morning because we're going to look at these verses repeatedly. But if you go back up just one verse, it's not on the screen. But the previous verse will tell us that the treasure is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so what he's talking about is this treasure. It is the knowledge of God's glory and the knowledge of God's gospel, the good news of Christ. So he says here that he has entrusted this treasure, the most valuable treasure there is, he has entrusted it in these clay jars. Now, what are the jars? Well, here he's talking about me and you. We are the clay jars. Now, what's, what, what's so special about a clay jar? Well, nothing is special about a clay jar. The clay jars that they would have used in those days to store things, uh, they were fragile, they were cheap, they were temporary, they were replaceable. We are the clay jars and the treasure of God's glory and God's gospel is stored in us. Now, why has God done that? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 7, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Now, that ought to strike you as a little odd. So God has made us these weak jars, and then he has entrusted God's glory and God's gospel to us, to our weakness, to our fragileness, 
And he's done it so that people would see not our strength, because there is none, but they would see the wonder, the wonder of God. Uh, I wouldn't have done it that way, would you? If I had, if I owned a super valuable piece of art, uh, maybe some uh, Fabergé egg, I would not put it in a cardboard box. <laughs> I would put it in the most, on the most beautiful display, the most safe, stable display I could find. Uh, if I had the world's most valuable diamond, I would put it in the world's most secure safe. But God has chosen differently. He's taken the knowledge of his glory and the knowledge of his gospel, and he's, he's entrusted it to these cardboard boxes. Uh, I think that's what he would have said had, it, uh, had he written it in our day, but uh, their cardboard boxes, their Amazon shipments uh, came in clay jars. Now look at verse 8 and 9. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. I read one commentator this week, and he paraphrased this. He says, we're squeezed, but not squashed. Bewildered, but not befuddled. Knocked down, but not knocked out. But let's be honest, church. Is that even true? Is that true of you? Look at those things. Paul says we... We've, we're afflicted, but we're not crushed. It's not that bad. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. See, I'm afraid that's not true of us. And that is further evidence that we often don't look at life through this resurrection lens. Paul just looks at life differently than we do. And so we need to know how to do that. Let's uh, look down to verse 10. He says, we always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. He says, we always carry the death, the dying of Jesus uh, in our bodies. Paul is saying, Jesus suffered I suffer. Paul suffered, not in exactly the same way Jesus suffered, but Jesus suffered, Paul suffered. But notice here that Paul's not even upset about his suffering. He doesn't say, oh, this is terrible. Please, Lord, take this away. He has a very different attitude. In fact, three times in three verses, 10, 11, and 12, he says that his dying with Jesus is an opportunity to display his living with Jesus. So that turns things on their head. Let's skip down to verse 14. He says, for we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Now he's talking about the resurrection, right? The one who raised Jesus will raise us. So Paul has hope and peace and confidence, even in the difficulty, even in the affliction. Why? Because the God who raised Jesus is with him. 
Do you remember a few weeks ago when we were reading 2 Corinthians 1 and he talked about his difficulty that he was overwhelmed to the point of death, that he had no strength, that there was no hope in him, and that he was despairing of life? But here he says, I knew that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is with me. He was looking at life. Please notice this, church, because everything we're going to say at the end is going to be built on this. Paul was looking at life through the resurrection lens. Through the resurrection lens. Look at verse 16. We're skipping a verse or two. Uh, but it says, therefore, do not give up. Do not give up. So if you underline things in your Bible, that's where you underline. Do not give up. We do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. He said, I'm getting old. <laughs> He said, life is hard, but my inner person, I am, I am renewed day by day, day by day. Look at verse 17. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolute, absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Let's pick that apart. He says his momentary affliction momentary affliction. What does that tell us? Well, it's contrasting with uh, the eternal weight of glory. Affliction is momentary. Uh, the weight of glory, whatever that is, we'll see in a moment, it is eternal. That tells me whatever I'm struggling with, it's not going to last for long. Whatever I'm going through, it's not going to last for long at least it's not going to last for long from an eternal perspective. I'm not going to carry my burdens into eternity. I'm not going to bring my struggles into the next life. They're momentary. The weight of glory, that's eternal. Now, I want to look at that word weight. Isn't that an odd word, the weight of glory? It's used six times in the New Testament, the original word, uh, and uh, the other five times it's translated burden. So it seems like an odd word here, the burden of glory. But we, we see its meaning when we see the contrast. So the light affliction and the burdensome or the heavy glory, what's he saying? He says from the eternity, from the perspective of eternity or through the lens of the resurrection, he says your greatest affliction is going to be like dropping a, uh, a feather on your head, the light affliction. But the glory of God is going to be like dropping a brick on your head. I mean, not in a negative way, but you might not notice the feather, but you will notice the brick. The, the weight of God's glory will be so significant to us. Uh, look at verse 18. He says, so we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. eternal. Uh, there's so many uh, twists. There's so many paradoxes in this passage. You notice what he says here. We could skip over this uh, easily, and we shouldn't. He says, what is, we focus on what is seen. He says, that's, don't do that but rather focus on what is unseen. How do you do that? Of course we focus on what is seen. I'm focusing right now on what is seen. You're seen. 
Focus not on that, but what is unseen. There's got to be something important there. He says the reason is because what you see is temporary. What you don't see is eternal. I, uh, I, I read one, uh, one writer this week. He said, we must live above sea level. S-E-E, sea level. Focus on what is unseen. Now look at verse 5. For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens that's not made with hands. Now, we're going to preach on 2 Corinthians 5 in a few weeks. We're working our way through the book. Uh, but I want you to see a couple of things, a couple of quick things here. First, Paul compares our earthly bodies and our earthly lives to a tent. But he compares our uh, eternal bodies, our resurrection bodies, and our resurrected eternal lives to a building, a building that God has constructed. So this contrast is important. What's the difference between a tent and a building? Well, a tent is temporary, right? A building is permanent. A tent is fragile, but a building is secure, a, a, a sturdy. A, a tent is insecure, a building is secure. A tent will not protect you from the elements, but a building will. God says, today we live in a tent, but one day we will live in a building built by the hands of the Father. Now look at one more verse, verse 2. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling. He says, we groan. Do you really think that's true? I think it was true of Paul, of course. Uh, all God's words in God's book are true. But I don't know if it's true of us. How many of us are groaning to get out of this body and to get out of this life and get on to what's next? But Paul says, we groan in this tent. We groan. Now, the fact that that's not as true of us as it was for Paul, again, tells us that we may be we may be looking at two people when there are three candlesticks, right? We may, be, we may have this understanding of life and living wrong. We may not be living life looking through resurrection lenses. So what is this passage now uh, that we've looked at this? What does this teach us about how? How to look at life through resurrection lenses? What's this new paradigm that he has here? What are we missing uh, how do we overcome our spatial uh, dis, uh, disorientation? Well, there are two things here that I see, and these may surprise you. These are so important. The first thing, if we're going to redefine life and see it the way Paul saw it, number one, we must know that God made us weak so we can declare God's extraordinary power. God has made me weak. God did that so that, so that I can declare his extraordinary power. Have you ever wondered why God didn't make us better? I mean, why didn't God make us stronger and sturdier and smarter? Well, he tells us here. He tells us here. I get frustrated sometimes and wish God would have made us a race of superheroes, maybe Captain America or Iron Man, I can't pronounce that word, uh, but uh, my kids make fun of me. 
the worst thing is I uh, used to pastor a church and that word was in the title of the church. And uh, so I just abbreviated the church for, I don't know, 10 years. Uh, you didn't want to know all that. So <laughs> why didn't God make us a race of superheroes? Uh, I tried to get all of them to cover the age uh, groups in our church. So Captain America and the steely-like man, uh, Batman, or at least Robin, or the Lone Ranger, or at least Tonto. But instead, God made us creatures who get tired easily, that have to have water every day to live, uh, that can be made sick or even killed by the tiniest virus, uh, susceptible to mental and emotional struggles, where people who get our feelings hurt, uh, we can be lonely even in a crowd. We're so influenced by temptation. So why has God done it that way? Well, these verses tell us emphatically, God made us weak so that we can declare the extraordinary power of God. Now, look, look back at just a couple of verses again. Verse 7, we have this treasure in clay jars. We're clay jars. We're weak. So that the extraordinary power of God might might be seen. Look at verse 10. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. We're weak. God has intentionally made us weak so that the power of God can be seen in us. You are weak so you can show that God is strong. We often think that the best way to live life, to honor the Lord, is to live a life with no problems and no hardships and no obstacles. But that's not, that's not the case. God is most honored. Frankly, when we go through trouble and difficulty and depressions and hardships, but through that whole time, we cling to God, his grace, his mercy, and we persevere because of what God does in our lives. And then God is honored. I can prove that to you this way. What makes a story, a person's story, inspirational or encouraging? Well, most inspirational stories are not stories of people who had all the best advantages, who uh, had a quick start and easy victories. Listen, that's not even very exciting. It's not interesting. No, the most inspirational stories are those where the protagonist faced adversity and against all odds and overcoming great hurdles, he or she perseveres to the end. Then we're inspired, right? Not because they persevered, but because they persevered over great obstacles. That highlights their greatness, right? Think of people like Helen Keller. Uh, one of my favorite movies is uh, Miracle on Ice. Uh, have you seen that movie about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team and how they defeated the Soviet Union? And yeah, just an incredible, incredible movie. Uh, and, and, and that hockey team was great. That story is so inspirational because they had to overcome such great hurdles. Uh, here in Texas, we're fond of saying, remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo, 1836 battle. We actually lost that battle. A lot of people don't realize that, but we still say it. Remember the Alamo. Now, there are a lot of heroes. They all died. A lot of heroes in the Alamo. That's why we say it. Remember the Alamo. Now, 
We could contrast that with the October 25th, 1982 U.S. invasion of Grenada. Do you remember that? The full might and power of the U.S. military was brought to bear on the great nation of Grenada. Now, Grenada had 1,300 soldiers, and not all of them had guns, but some of them did. They had zero tanks, zero airplanes, zero helicopters, zero missiles. They did have eight military vehicles with no weapons on them. The U.S. had the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard was actually a part of this. So now, almost 200 years later, people are still saying, remember the Alamo. Nobody has ever said, remember Grenada, right? Because a story is inspirational because people overcame, people went through some great difficulty and they were still brave, they were still strong. They fought to the end. So the life that brings the greatest honor to God. Now this is the resurrection view of life. So listen, this isn't normal. The world wouldn't understand this. But the life that brings the greatest honor to the Lord is not the life where there are no hardships, no hurdles, every day is an easy day, no weaknesses, no failures. No, the life that brings the greatest honor to the Lord is the life that faces hardships, faces setbacks, faces obstacles and adversities, still clings to the Lord, leans on the Lord for strength, endurance, hope, finds joy and peace in the middle of the storm, and then the world takes notice, not of our strength, but of what? The power of God. The power of God. And so Paul, that's exactly what he's saying. Uh, verse 7, we're jars of, jars of clay so that people would notice the extraordinary power of God. Verse 8, we're afflicted, we're, we're perplexed. Verse 9, we're persecuted, we're struck down. We carry the death of Jesus so that people can see the life of Jesus in these broken and clay jars. It is the endurance in the midst of adversity not the immediate miraculous deliverance from it that most profoundly reveals the power of God. Now I want to share a personal story. I have two here. I'll, um, I'm going to share the first one, and if I'm really brave, I'll share the second one. Uh, but I, I want to illustrate this in, in a way that I hope is helpful. Uh, so I stand before you today, and I'm preaching to hundreds of people. Uh, here on our campus in the two worship services, and I'm preaching to many hundreds more that are watching online and on television. Uh, and some of you are even eager to hear uh, what, what I have to say about what I studied in the Bible last week. That amazes me. Uh, I also have the privilege of leading the greatest group of ministers and directors ever assembled together in a Baptist church. And that amazes me. So now let's look at my qualifications for the job. I've been here a long time. It'd be hard for you to fire me now so I can be honest. Here are my qualifications. It might not be that hard, so show some grace. So before I came to know Christ as a 17-year-old young man, I'd probably been to church 
a dozen times in my entire life. In high school, I had a reputation of being the smart aleck kid, disrespectful of authority, classic underachiever, always getting in trouble, terrible reputation. I was the kid every parent hoped their son or daughter would stay away from. I was lazy. I don't think I did a lick of homework the last three years of high school. Other than The Lord of the Rings, if you're familiar with those books, I did not read an entire book all the way through my 12 years of school. Probably through a lot more than that. Now this was an era before there were treatments for these kinds of things, uh, but while I could ace most tests that you could give me, I could not complete any assignment that took longer than 30 minutes. And I didn't. I graduated high school, I had never written a paper, never read a book, never did a project, never completed an assignment, never turned in my homework. It gets worse. I preferred to be a loner. I wanted to be an engineer or maybe an actuary. Uh, I, uh, I wanted a career where I didn't have to be around anybody. And I thought that as long as I could do some math problems, uh, that I could be one of those things and just sit in a cubicle and nobody would bother me. Now, as it turns out, I don't think that's what engineers do all day, but that's what I thought they did, and that's why I wanted to be one. Then the Lord began to work on me, in me, to show me that he was calling me into the ministry. So I took a New Testament class. I knew nothing about the Bible. Uh, I was a child of God at this point, but about all I knew was Romans 6.23 and John 3.16. So I took a New Testament class at Auburn University, got in the class, and it turned out that the, the professor was an atheist. Then I changed universities to learn more about the Bible and because no one was guiding me, I chose to go to what was at least then the most liberal Baptist college in America. And my first professor and advisor was a universalist. So he wasn't a Christian. That's not my judgment of him. That's his, his label. My pastor, who is helping me through all of this, turned out to be a philanderer and a disgrace to the gospel. So at 19 years old... Beginning my call into the ministry, I was biblically illiterate, socially awkward, reclusive, lazy, know-it-all, with a bad reputation, and no good guides. Further, I didn't have any propensity for anything that had to do with the ministry. Uh, I was a kid who could do uh, integral calculus in his sleep, but I couldn't read a book if my life depended upon it. If I would have taken one of those career uh, aptitude tests, uh, it would have told me that my best career choice would have been crime or homelessness or maybe just inmate. And I think had I taken a spiritual gift inventory, it would have said I had the spiritual gift of staying away from people. All right. Do you know what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1? Paul says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. There are not many 
chosen who are wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the foolish, the weak, the insignificant, the despised, that no one may boast in anything but the Lord. You see, isn't that amazing? That's the resurrection way of looking at life. God has put us in clay jars. We are clay jars. I said that wrong. God has put his wonderful truth in such weak people so that people can see the power and the glory of God. Listen, if anything good ever happens, anything ever associated with any ministry that I'm a part of is not because I'm good at something. It's not because I smart in some way. It's not because I'm clever or type A personality. It's, it's just the glory of God. And that's, that's the way it ought to be, right? Can I share just one more? And I'll regret this. Um, my wife's in the other service, I hope. And... Um, <laughs> Is she behind me? My, my wife always stands behind me. So this is the part of this I learned this week. I don't think I knew this before I studied this passage this week. Um, the end of this, I didn't know. So 642 days ago, I frankly thought that any person who claimed that he or she struggled with depression or anxiety, I believed that person was just weak and whiny. I wouldn't have said it out loud, I had more sense than that, but I confess to you, that's what I thought. I really thought that people who struggled with those kinds of things just needed to buck up, be a man, put on your big boy pants, and uh, quit being so childish. But 641 days ago, the Lord just knocked out every mental and emotional pillar and support that I had ever known. Um, there have been dark days since then, and no living person on this planet knows the full story just of the depth of despair that some of those 641 days have uh, have shown, I prayed and I begged the Lord to give me back the strength I had 642 days ago, and he has not. Uh, recently, most days have been good days, and, and God has been faithful in that sense, kind in that sense. But listen, here's what I've learned from this. 2 Corinthians 4.10, we always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. So God hadn't fixed me. But perhaps God will be more greatly honored and glorified in my broken life, leaning on the hope and the power and the peace of God.
than he could ever have been glorified with me strutting around thinking I'm stronger than everybody else. Now, it wasn't that Paul was glad that he was weak or that he had hardships. Uh, we'll see that when we get to 2 Corinthians 12 in a few weeks. But he was glad that he had the opportunity to show people how the Lord can sustain a man through difficulty, how the Lord could give strength and perseverance and could give peace even in the darkness. Now, I hope none of you ever suffer. I hope I never have another day of suffering. But if and when it comes, listen, church, we must remind ourselves that it is endurance with praise, endurance with praise, not the avoidance of pain that is the evidence of the power of God in a person's life. And we can take courage from the fact that we have been given opportunity with our weakness to show others the strength of God and the power of the resurrection. So, if I finish this message, you'll get out in time for supper, okay? So if the Lord will allow, we will pick it up there next week. But let's, let's, wrap, let's wrap this up here. Forgive me for not giving you the blanks. Just got to come back next week, okay? Um, there are two ways to look at life. There is the... There is this health, wealth, and prosperity way, this independent, Texas tough, American-made way to look at life. I am strong, and I, am, I can overcome everything, and I am a victor. Listen, God has no desire for you to be that. Because if you're that then the glory goes to you. And as Christians, we don't even want the glory to come to us. Verse 7, God has taken that great treasure and he has put it in jars of clay so that the greatness might be seen. So when you have hardships, you should pray that the Lord will rescue you. I do, and sometimes he does. Do that. But church, let's be okay that, we're cars, that we are jars of clay. Let's be, let's be okay that we're jars of clay. Because when we struggle and find peace in the Lord in the midst of the darkness, the world can see what a great God we serve. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed, Father in heaven, it means something to be a child of God. It means something to be a man, to be a woman, to be a, a, a young person who has put his faith and trust in Jesus and what Jesus has done on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, it means something. For that to be true, it means that we have a resurrected life, that the power of the resurrection lives in us. Father, because of the power of the resurrection, we don't have to live perfect lives. We don't have to be victorious in every 
way and over every obstacle. We just have to walk with you. And there will be days when it may be difficult to be the clay jar that you have made us. But on those days, we have our greatest opportunities to point people to the strength, the power, the grace and mercy of our God. Father, for those here that don't know Christ, that can't even comprehend a message like this, I pray that they'll reach out, even at the end of the service, they'll reach out and say, I need to know how to live like that. They'll trust you as their Savior. For the rest of us, Father, forgive me for complaining, bellyaching about being a clay jar. I'm glad I'm a clay jar. Because through this clay jar, your glory can be seen to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.